0: Hey, bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision, gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code FREESHIPPING for orders over $150. This includes international orders.
1: Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. And who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the
0: people who love them. we have a celebrity with us today joining us (laughs) on The Dish. Would you please explain who is here talking with us today?
1: Today, we actually have a Meg Quigley themed episode. Of course, we welcome for the interview and Shoemaker, but for The Dish, we wanted to have on the queen bee, Marissa Esposito. She won it all, winner of MQVC 2019. Marissa, welcome. Welcome.
2: Hello. Thank you so much. That's such an amazing introduction. Oh my God.
1: We're so happy you could be here with us today. So since winning, how has it been? Just kind of it all being over and basking in the glory. How has your experience been since coming home and wrapping this whole thing up?
2: Honestly, it's just how it was before I left or before I won. You know, you always think that with all this rejection that we get in this field that When you finally get that validation, when you finally win, it's going to last forever, that feeling of being on top of the world. And it's still there. But also, if I'm being honest with myself, I know that I still have a really long road ahead of me. And I'm humbled by it, really, because... In the grand scheme of things, even one amazing win is subjective too, you know? (laughs) Right. I remember
1: when I was nearing the end of grad school and applying for higher ed jobs and I was a finalist for this one position. And I remember honestly thinking to myself, oh, if I just win a job, I'll feel so validated. I won't have performance anxiety anymore. I remember literally (laughs) thinking that. And now I laugh. It does not go away. (laughs) You know, it's a good point. So what made you want to do the competition in the first place?
2: Well, this isn't my first time uh, auditioning for the competition. I auditioned uh, when I first came to Cleveland for my master's, I think the fall of 2015, and it was for the symposium of 2016. I just, I mean, I had known about it even before then. I heard about it in my undergrad at uh, SUNY Fredonia. It had been advertised to us by... um, some of the various guest artists that we came, that we had come in and give masterclasses. I remember in particular Nadina Mackie Jackson brought these pamphlets with her of the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition, and she was encouraging some of the women in my studio to keep it in mind. And um, just kind of stuck in my head, and I decided to give it a go. And I came to Cleveland and. I did not pass the preliminaries. <laughs> I think we're all used to that, <laughs> we're right? We're <laughs> all used to that, yeah. But uh, I'm not the really the same player that I was back then. And um, I decided to give it another try. And I was really surprised when I made it into the semifinals. You know, you're always surprised when you're chosen. Yeah, I was really excited about that. And then I was like, okay, this is going to be the, the least restful winter break I've ever had. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so then we get out to LA and the symposium is three days long, but um, the team and the Quiggles, as you guys are called, arrived several days earlier. <laughs>
2: that is so isn't that crazy. so cute? It? It? <laughs> and I had no idea until we started just like being called that. And I was oh, like, Oh, okay. Quiggle. <laughs> That's cute. It makes sense. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And you guys, even though it was a competitive environment, I felt like you guys were a really supportive, tight-knit group. I'd love to hear about your experiences getting to know the other semifinalists and in that period of time before the competition actually began.
2: Yeah, that was really cool. First of all, there's just an immense amount of respect that was just implicit between all of us. And it definitely helped that we all felt so bolstered by the team and just by everybody else who was helping out and treating us all like queens. (laughs) It was cool that, you know, the whole female-only aspect of it really took gender out of the equation. So it's not so much that we are all women. It was like we all are artists. Like, we're still just individuals Inside these bodies that happened to be female, and it was cool that that was the the dynamic. And it was it was also really great to get to know these other great artists who I'm sure we're gonna cross paths again in the future. So it was a cool introduction to like a lot of you know people who are already really successful who I didn't know who are you know in my generation of bassoon players and kind of rising up and all at the same time.
0: So you get
2: to the final round
0: and I heard that you told an amazing story on stage and I have not been told what this story is. So I'm very curious. Would you mind sharing with us?
2: I also want to preface this by saying I wasn't planning on telling this story until I like just kind of got into conversation with uh, some people at the symposium and they were just, uh, asking me questions about my instrument and I started telling them and they were like, wait, are you planning on saying, like telling that story in the final round? Because that's kind of perfect. And I was like, no, but like, you're right. I think I am going to tell that story. (laughs) So my instrument is a Heckel 6874W. And the letter at the end of that uh, serial number is an oddity. Um, There are not usually letters involved. But it turns out that this instrument that I have was made in 1929 for the Cleveland Women's Orchestra. And we speculate that the W stands for woman because it was made for a woman. Wow. Yeah, and it's just like any other late six um series heckle, it doesn't have any, you know, real differences just because it was made for a woman. But instruments that were made in that era of heckles do tend to be a little bit more compact in their key work and and more comfortable for a woman. But yeah. This particular instrument was meant to be played by a woman. It hasn't always been. I bought this instrument from Billy Heston. So it's been kind of around the country. It's changed hands. And now it's found its way back to a woman in Cleveland. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. And I didn't know this story before I bought it either. I had no idea. Does it just make you love it more? Oh, yeah. Definitely. (laughs) That's an amazing story. It's like synchronicity that it came back to you. I know. And then that we were at the Meg Quigley competition and like in the final round together, it was just this whole bigger than me moment that I got to be a part of.
1: So then we march you all out on stage and it's time for it to be announced. I want to know the moments before and then as we gradually list semi-finalists and the honorable mentions and then third place and then when you realize it's you and that like tell me how it feels to win girl that's what we want (laughs) to (laughs) know
2: that felt really incredible just having all those people clapping for me (laughs) Like, like whoa you know like trying to I just tried to soak in every moment every single little clap you know it seemed like it lasted forever too like time kind of stood still and I was in this scene I felt so much gratitude and I saw my my partner Ben he was there and he was in the audience and I could see his face as the announcements are being made. He went to the performances and everything and he saw me play and he kept telling me that I was going to win, but you know, it, he's like supposed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Can your partner really be objective? They could try, but I don't
1: think they can. No, and in fact when you're talking about his face, I was thinking how it it feels really great to win, but I think as someone who loves and is partnered with another musician and also someone who is a teacher and loves her students so much, I think it feels better when your loved ones win.
2: Yeah. Thousand percent. It was, just, it was just crazy. And then I ran out and called everyone and my teachers and my family. And that was amazing. My mom said she couldn't stop crying. <laughs>
0: so um, you have accomplished something totally amazing. And we send so much love and congratulations to you. you. And I'd love to close this dish by asking a very important question which is what
2: is your number one top favorite snack? Oh my God. <laughs> so I don't eat to live. I live to eat. <laughs> praise, <laughs> praise, girl, hallelujah. And the church said amen.
0: <laughs> this question is very important to this family.
2: <laughs> well, there's this one thing that... I've been on this kind of uh, microwaved egg kick. So so one day um, I forgot to pay the utilities and our gas got shut off Uh, (laughs) and it was three days before we could get it turned back on. So we had to use the microwave to like make all our meals. And uh, we started doing this like microwaved egg dish and we would put all these like Chinese condiments on the Ooh. eggs, and um, yeah, we'd put like bonita flakes and and you know like spicy chili sauce and um, Q pie mayo, cilantro, scallions, maybe a little little touch of soy sauce in the eggs before you microwave it. But they actually get this like nice. Um, texture in the microwave they get this like kind of fluffy silky very nice texture it's good to mm-hmm. add some tofu this is not your everyday egg no it's not and it's very filling but sometimes like I still make it even though we have like our gas back and we could use stove. <laughs> I'd still make
1: it on that note <laughs> I think it's time for lunch <laughs>
0: Marissa, thank you so much for joining us. It was amazing to talk to you and congratulations
2: again. Thank you so much. This was so fun.
0: Do you have the empty reed case blues? Well, luckily for you, Singin' Dog Double Reeds is an online double reed shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reeds for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit us at www.singindog.com
1: to see all of our products and fill up that reed case. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the double reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrecs. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckel bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckel vocal for you. For all your double-reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you.
0: We are thrilled to welcome to the podcast Dr. Ann Shoemaker, Associate Professor of Bassoon at Baylor University. Welcome, Ann.
3: Hey you guys.
0: We're so happy you could be here. Um, we usually love to start by asking about how you came to the bassoon.
3: Well, I think that my story is probably similar to a lot of people's. With wind instruments specifically, I started on the clarinet in fifth grade. And then a couple of years later, I decided that I just, I knew I wanted to learn another instrument. I had, you know, various options in mind. And I talked to my band director and he said, well, I have this brand new bassoon Um, And I had been thinking that you might want to play that. And I had no idea what it was, but I saw a picture and I thought it was cool. And so I gave it a shot and that just ended up being the right fit for me. I had been involved in music ever since I was a little kid. But yeah, once I got the bassoon, there was no going back. That was pretty much it.
1: (laughs) So how did you make the transition from just being a student in band to knowing that you wanted to pursue it in college and beyond?
3: I always knew, I guess once I was in high school, I knew that that music was just in general was a good fit for me. Like I just seemed it seemed to come pretty naturally and I w- was always interested in it, happy to be in rehearsals and that kind of thing. But I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career. So when I was looking at colleges, I really wanted to find a place where there were options that were available to me, both you know, different options in music and also, if I decided that I didn't want to do music as a career, that I could switch majors and it would still be a great place to go to school. So it wasn't, I think it wasn't until my, the end of my freshman year, I decided to go for per, for music performance. And yeah, after that, then it was more of a direct path. But before then, I was definitely seeking, considering different options within music.
0: What was the turning point that made you say, yep, this is it? music. I'm all in.
3: Mm, I remember having a conversation with um, our trumpet professor actually at Furman University where I went for undergrad and was just sort of talking about the different things that I was sort of considering. And he really encouraged me to go with performance. And it's not that I hadn't thought about it. I guess I just wasn't sure that it was smart to do that or, you know, it just seems like sort of a bold choice. But, you know, he He expressed that he thought, you know, I had what it, what it takes to make it in performance, and that ultimately that would probably be more satisfying for me. And that's the that's the thing that sticks out the most. I mean, that was already where I was putting most of my energy, but I just, I guess, I just didn't know if it was kind of safe to do that. But I decided to go ahead and go that way after that point.
1: So then, walk us through your next steps after undergrad and embarking on your professional journey.
3: When I was in undergrad, the biggest um, help for me as far as my uh, performance career was going to music festivals. I started, uh, I went to the Glickman Popkin Bassoon Camp every summer. And then I also would go, you know, to, I went to lots of different music festivals um, each summer and I was able to just absorb so much in those, meet so many people. You know, I went to a small liberal arts school for college, which was wonderful, but not the intense musical surroundings that some people might have, you know, if you're at a conservatory. So in the summers I would just absorb and figure out what I needed to learn and what I needed to practice. And then I would go practice, you know, for the rest of the year, be working on all of those things. And then after undergrad, then I I went to Yale school of music for my master's degree and um, was definitely on the orchestral path. That's just kind of where my focus was. I think most, Young performance majors are sort of focusing on orchestral playing. That's what I was working towards. And then it was actually after I had graduated from Yale for my master's degree. And the plan was to take a year off and, um, well, not take a year off, but just to work and to not not go straight into a doctoral program. I was planning on living in New Haven and starting to get a little bit of work in New York. And then um, all of a sudden, at the same time, I had two opportunities that were placed in front of me. One was to actually move back to South Carolina and to start teaching at Furman, where I had gone for my undergrad. Um, My old professor had to leave that position, and I was recommended for it. So that was one great opportunity. And then the other was to play in um, Chicago Civic so I kind of had to make a a choice just on the spot like which direction do I want to go? So that was tough, but ultimately I decided that for me going back and teaching and working in South Carolina was was right. So that's what I did and from there I just I was freelancing, teaching, playing in orchestras um for 3 years and within that time is when I decided that that teaching was really what fed me and left me more satisfied and that I needed to do that as my primary focus. And so, um, of course, I still play in orchestras all the time, but I, um, that was the point when I decided I wanted to go ahead and get my doctorate and aim towards getting a full-time teaching job.
0: That seems like a very significant crossroads, you know, two really great opportunities in completely divergent directions right? How did you know you made the right choice?
3: Oh, well, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure that I did know at the time that I was making the right choice. I just had to make the best choice that I could. And I think that's one of those hard things about being an adult, isn't it? That that the decisions aren't so clear a lot of the time. Mm. And there are still times, you know, I've had points along the way when I've been like, man, I wonder what my life would be like right now if I had chosen to move to Chicago at that point. Probably would look very different than it does right now. But I don't know. I I tend to make decisions. I have like gut react pretty strong gut reactions to things. And it just felt like the right thing to be teaching in my old school was really exciting. And also, I don't know, civic seems sort of part-time and temporary and the option to go uh, work in South Carolina just kind of seemed better to me. I don't know. It just fit me better. So that's what I did.
1: And so while you were there, you had previously described this mindset of being more focused on the orchestral realm. And then this shift happened. Was that gradual or were there some experiences that contributed to um, shifting the focus in terms of your career toward pedagogy and university teaching?
3: I do think that it was gradual. You know, I spent a lot of hours in the car in those years, driving from one city to the next, both for for teaching, for for playing gigs. So I had a lot of time to think about how I felt at the end of the day or at the end of a rehearsal or when I was leaving Furman and been teaching all day. And really, for me, the relationships that you get to develop when you're a teacher are so special and it's so rewarding. Ultimately, that just Felt like it gave me energy and felt like a greater sense of purpose when I was teaching. I always enjoy playing in the orchestra, and I think I would go crazy if I wasn't playing um, regularly. But still, when I thought about what I wanted to be giving all of my time to, or most of my time to, that just seemed like a better fit for my strengths and uh, my inclinations. It just seemed like a better choice for me. So it definitely was gradual. I, I took my time over those years and I always recommend to my students too, that, that it's important to take time. I, I would never recommend, um, under normal circumstances that someone would go straight through all three degrees without working because you learn so much about yourself when you're actually out in the field working that you, that you can't learn when you're in school. Um, you, you don't see what life is really like until you're doing it. So I definitely recommend that my students take the time to, to get some work experience before they go into a doctorate. True story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my, I took a year off before my doctorate and I uh, taught preschool and that convinced me that I did in fact want to go get <laughs> my doctorate.
3: <laughs> wow, preschool. How, how did you decide? Why preschool?
0: Well, it was a job and it had health insurance, so I was <laughs> I was all in. <laughs> so talk us through how you made the jump over to Baylor.
3: Mm, that was sort of an interesting story. I actually got hired. Um my first year at Baylor was a one-year position and I was hired on July 31st for wow, that following semester. So That was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. So after I knew that I wanted to teach, I decided to go to uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro for my doctorate. I could, you know, attend school there and keep teaching at Furman, keep all of my work up. So I was, I had been in school for one year when Baylor announced a bassoon professor job. And I, I thought about applying at that point, actually wrote a cover letter and everything, but I never submitted it because I'd only been in school for the one year. I had so much more coursework left and I just decided it was... I just wasn't ready to take that on, and so my dad is a Baptist minister. I don't know if you guys know that Baylor's a a Christian school, mm-hmm. and my brother went to Baylor. My whole like youth group from growing up in high school, they all went to Baylor. So I've always known about Baylor, and and so anyway, I thought when I saw it, I was like, well, how many Baptist bassoonists are there? You know, not that many. <laughs> so uh, it seemed like a good option to apply. Not that you have to be Baptist to teach at Baylor, but anyway. I love that brand. <laughs> you know, there's a few of us out there, but it's not a huge, a huge um, group. We, we need t-shirts with that, I think, for the studio. So anyway, so I actually didn't apply. Um, and that's when Amy Pollard was here for a year. And then she moved on to Georgia and they needed a bassoon teacher. So the first time that they contacted me, they were, you know, doing a one year. So they, you know, they were searching around, getting recommendations, that kind of thing. So I was in the mountains in North Carolina at the Glickman Boston Bassoon Camp, where they were, was no phone service. There's still very little, but um, there, there was almost none. And I get this call from our band director at Baylor saying you were recommended. And of course, you know, I was super excited because I had, I didn't have a job and that's nice to be recommended for a, for a job. And so I'm driving around the mountain, trying to find a place where my phone will work Mm -hmm. so that I can have a conversation with him (laughs) and finally found a place. And we, we spoke and of course, I couldn't submit anything to him until I got back because there was no internet. I was very excited. And then a few days later, I guess it was, I found out that the dean had decided to make the job an adjunct job instead of full-time, and they had canceled the search. And so that was just very disappointing. And so I go, but I went along, you know, with my, my summer and actually went to Venezuela that summer for my working on my dissertation and was doing all sorts of things. And then I got back ready for school to start and I got another call from Baylor and Doris Deloach, bless her. She had gone into the Dean's office every day, all summer telling him how important it was that the bassoon position was a full-time position, how important it was for the school of music. And so he finally agreed at the end of the summer to make it full-time to keep it as a full-time uh, track. And so they brought me in and I interviewed and I got the job. So that's how I ended up at Baylor. And then I was fortunate enough as they searched for the the ongoing position um, with a national search, I was lucky enough to be hired to, to stay on in that position. And here we are 10 years later.
0: <laughs> so a lot of people these days go on to get doctorates and apply for these higher education applied jobs, as a successful job haver, <laughs> what advice do you have for um, those professionals and pre-professionals who are starting out on that path?
3: That is a really challenging place to be. I know, you know, when you're submitting resumes and wondering what's going to work out, you um, One thing is just to be patient and don't give up because, you know, I think a lot of the people who make it in our profession, especially in academia, are the the people literally who who don't give up, who keep working at it and are willing to live through several years of discomfort, I would say, and just um, keep working towards their goals, even when it feels kind of tough. So that's one thing. Another thing I would say is definitely that your references matter. To, be, to do your best, to make your best impression wherever you go, because you never know who it is that's going to recommend you for a job. And of course, there are those people that we ask for our references when we apply for a job. And those letters can make a huge, huge difference. I've been on a lot of search committees lately. We have a lot of new faculty in our wind area at Baylor. And, you know, you may have a handful of of applicants who you and you really like all of them. But if you have a letter from someone that you that you trust, that's just really glowing about a person that really can change the committee's mind or sway them in that direction. And then I, I was lucky early on to get recommendations for a couple of jobs that I did not apply for until I was invited to. And, and I was just so thankful for those opportunities, just always making the best impression that you can, you know, where if you're, whether it's in your doctoral program, or you're out working, because you just don't know who it is that can make that difference as you look for a job.
1: So one of the things that I like about working in higher education is that in terms of the research element, we get to pursue uh, our individual interests and kind of projects and whatnot. And one of your recent projects is your new CD, New Standards, Music for Bassoon mm-hmm. and Piano. And I would love to hear about the process of selecting repertoire, your goals for the project and just the process in putting it together.
3: Yeah, I was um, very excited, but um, very overwhelmed the thought of making a CD. It was definitely not something, not a project that I would have taken on naturally, but I, you know, was sort of encouraged as part of my tenure process to make a CD. And so I knew that, that I needed to. And so, of course, if you're going to do it, you want to have a product that you're really proud of at the end. And so I spent several years thinking about it, thinking about, well, what do I want to record? Um, trying out different repertoire when I was um, traveling, giving recitals and just getting to know the repertoire that I was considering. Yeah. I spent several years doing that. And I remember I was having a conversation. I was down at, um, at UT in Austin. I was talking with Kristen Wolf Jensen and I was just talking about the process and what repertoire I was considering to record. And she advised me to just record music that I love there's plenty of CDs that are very focused on a they have a theme you know all the music of one composer or French music or there's all you know all these different types and they're wonderful but that's kind of what I was I was trying to decide well do I want to do all of the music of a composer but I was ultimately more excited to just record pieces that I had fallen in love with over the course of these years of giving recitals since I've been at Baylor And so, yeah, so that's what I did. I just, uh, I ended up, most of the music, it's 20th century, um, ends up being mainly American and French composers. So um, it's not completely random across all from the Baroque period on or whatever, but it was more just pieces that spoke to me rather than, than trying to fit within parameters of a specific theme. So can you
1: tell us about one of your favorite pieces from the CD?
3: Probably my favorite one to perform is Black Anemones by Joseph Schwantner. I love that piece. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And I, the first time I heard it, it was with flute and piano. And I just thought the colors in that piece are just so gorgeous. And we don't play things like that on the bassoon very often. But I figured it was worth a shot. So I, I did. I, you know, tried it and I just, I just love it. It's just so beautiful one of those pieces where you can kind of get past the notes and just really enjoy making music. And so I love that. Um, And it's nice because it's short, so you can put it on recitals pretty easily. So that one is definitely one of my favorites that I've played a lot since I recorded it as well. And then one that I'm proud of is the Gotkovsky Variations Concertant. That one was completely new to me. um, And I know that some people do know it, sort of pockets of people are, are familiar with that piece, but it's less known, I think, than than some others. And man, it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> so I, I will admit I don't put it on as many recitals because it's a <laughs> lot of work to have it ready to go. And oh, the stress of having reads so that you can play high E's and low B flats in tune all at the same time is something that I want to avoid sometimes. But anyway, (laughs) I'm really proud of that one as well.
0: You are the co-executive director of the Meg Quigley Vivaldi Competition and Bassoon Symposium. I'd love to know what inspired you to take that on and what's important to you about MQBC.
3: Yeah, I was um, invited to join the sort of, executive team if you will um last year um so this is a new role for me i knew about med quickly uh the competition since the very first year of the competition i was really bummed out because i was a year too old the first time they had the competition <laughs> and uh but i so i knew about it then and has, had sort of followed it and then i i got involved for the first time when it was in texas at round top and I got to serve as one of the judges and I got to play and really just loved being a part of things and sort sort of have gotten more involved each time since then so this has been my first time to help actually to plan the symposium and um, take on this role and I'm just I don't know I just think it's such a such a great organization there's so many aspects of it that are supportive and community building they're just the things that I probably what some of the things that I love most about being a musician Besides just the playing the bassoon part, you know, certainly supporting young women in their career is such a wonderful thing. And you can see the results of that out in the, in the professional field. Now there's so many successful women who have been a part of the competition over the years. And then really the symposium for me is just so special. And I was really proud of this last symposium that we had in January. Everyone has such a great time, feels um, encouraged and supported It's just kind of like this little utopian thing for a few days where everybody is getting sort of fed musically and genuinely wants the best for everyone who's performing and who's involved. So it's really cool. I'm very thankful to have that um, as one of the things that I get to do on a regular basis.
1: It is very cool and I would like to join you in gushing, but I think if I gush any more about MQVC, Galit's gonna like <laughs> leave me forever. I've
3: been talking about it nonstop.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna die of jealousy is what I'm gonna
3: do. <laughs> it's pretty neat, I will say. There's you know, Galeet, you can start the oboe the oboe version. You know what? I'm gonna do it. You should <laughs> Um, so shifting gears a little bit to
1: you as a performer, we've obviously explored you as a professor and pedagogue a little bit, but you're very active as a performer. And so I'd like for you to talk to us about how you approach time management in terms of your practicing self-care, being a human being outside of being a musician, and kind of your approach to life.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: So yeah, isn't that the goal to have a life is always the goal, but um, it's definitely not easy, as you guys know, and I certainly don't have it all figured out. I'm always trying to do better. And I think that's all we can do. But the one thing that I do um, most consistently is warm up well. And I love Chris Weatt's warm up book. I think it's amazing. And if I do those exercises, then I can play for so much longer each day, and I use my air much more efficiently and so I'm a huge advocate of those, and my students use those use that book um I don't always go through all five parts; it kind of takes a long time, but I at least go through usually at least through most of the part three, so for those of you who know it's like yeah, five parts. So I do that, and that really helps me um, quite a bit. And then beyond that, there's always a time crunch. So usually I have a stack of music that I have to learn. And so I, I warm up, and then I'll do some sort of um, technique work, whatever seems most pressing to me. So sometimes that's scale work. I have a book that I use and that my students use by, I hope I pronounced it right, Klusch k-l-u-t-s-c-h i believe um it's similar to Uberdo, that kind of a thing where you're changing articulations and doing different scale patterns it just looks less scary and less (laughs) less like when i look at Uberdo, i'm just like oh my gosh when i you know you're never done or whatever. So, um, I just think it's a little more, it's a little user, more user friendly. And it has a few things beyond just the scale exercises as well that I really like. So yeah, sometimes it'll be scale work. Sometimes it'll be some vibrato or intonation stuff. I mean, I I would love to do all of that every day, but that's not a reality. Um, and then, yeah, it's just kind of studying the music that I have coming up, whether it's orchestral or solo or chamber or a little bit of, of each of those. Um, and the summer when I have a little bit less to do each day, then I, then I will get out, you know, my etude books and I have fun working on etudes, but I, I can't say that I actually get to do a ton of that during the year.
0: Do you have experience with performance anxiety and how do you address that with, um, maybe in your experiences and then also with your students?
3: Mm, Yes, I definitely do have plenty of experience with performance anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. So for me, I think it's overly simple, right? But the more prepared you are, the less nervous you are usually. So when there's less doubt, when I'm confident that I am able to play everything, when it's likely that I will play everything well, then I'm going to be less worried about it. I have learned that the more I can focus on the expression of the music, the less um, critical I am or the quicker I'm able to get beyond that critical side of my, my brain. so if I say I make a mistake when I'm performing, um, if I can immediately start singing the line in my head rather than spending energy and focus on what just happened, then you know I can get past those nerves more quickly and I can get to a place where I'm enjoying myself when I perform again. So I try to do that as much as I can. There are certainly better days and worse days with that, but the more I can just get away from that critical mindset, the better. I talk with my students about in the practice room, part of what you're doing is training your muscles to be able to execute these things that we play. But the goal would be that by the time you're performing you don't have to think about those things anymore. You've done that training, so then you can focus on your phrasing, your musical ideas, um, the colors you want to make, that kind of thing and and then your body knows what to do, knows how to execute those things. So I think my students that that struggle with performance anxiety the most, they tend to have a hard time getting to that point. you know they kind of they get stuck um, staying in that critical practice room, you know, trying to fix everything mode Mm -hmm. and they can't get beyond that. So we work on, on that. And of course, everybody's different on how you actually get out of that mode and that, you know, it's easier for some people than others, but, but that's what we sort of try to do is just get to a point where you can let that go and just be expressive.
1: So you are very active in performing in orchestras and spoke about your love of, um, orchestral playing. And so I want to know if Mm -hmm. Aunt Shoemaker was queen for a day and could make the orchestra play any program that your heart desired. If you were in charge of a concert program, what would you put on it?
3: Oh my gosh. (laughs) That is such a great question. Um, gosh, now I have to come up with a really great answer. Um, (laughs) I th- I think that probably my answers wouldn't be that different from a lot of bassoonists out there. There has to be a Mozart or a Beethoven symphony on there. We just played Mozart 40 the other day in the Shreveport symphony. Oh my gosh. I had so much fun. And the performance, I was one of those where I was able to just let go and go for it. And our, our conductor wanted it to be a little bit raucous and I happily obliged. And anyway, <laughs> it was really fun. Um, <laughs> So let's see a for for me Mozart and Beethoven anything and then um probably a Shostakovich symphony or something like that in the second half that would be great I mean these it's really about the for me it's the composers who just write so beautifully for the bassoon you know they just know how to write for the bassoon and it works and so um yeah that's what I would do
0: excellent choices okay thanks
3: (laughs) Have a read
0: making routine that works? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I've actually got it all figured out.
1: <laughs>
3: Help us,
1: please.
3: <laughs> Reads, I definitely fall in the category of a I'm always learning, I'm always a student. There's always more that you know, I, they can always be better. And I think that that, I mean that's how I approach most things in life really but reads are not something that uh, I would say are one of my natural gifts readmaking is not one of my natural inclinations so um, I definitely am always looking for methods or you know things that that make them my reads even better um, but I do keep track of as many variables realistically as I can I'm not so great at keeping track of things one- beyond um the forming process but i am keeping track of the cane doing the hardness testing thing although that's fairly new so you know i don't you know i don't have numbers to give you or anything like that but i trying to just keep track of of as many variables as i possibly can so that i can eliminate those variables that are not successful right so i try to have you know and i do this with my students too my students are supposed to have 30, um, blanks at any given time. Um, I don't always have that, but that's what, that's the rule. And, um, so I just try to leave, leave the blanks sitting for as long as I can, um, for consistency. And, you know, I don't think I have anything that's going to blow your mind as far as original stuff, but I, I just am always trying new things to the point that I can actually keep track of it. You know, like I don't want to, try all the new things at once. But I usually have several shapes that I am trying out and different types of cane and all of that. Uh, As far as a regular routine, I guess (laughs) not other than I make a lot of reeds in the summer and then scrape them during the year just for time's sake. If If I did have more time, I would form them regularly because I think you are a better reed maker if you're working on those skills constantly as well. Mm-hmm. But realistically that doesn't happen a whole lot. I'll I'll make a few during the year here and there, but but it's certainly not a, you know, I form three blanks a day and I click you know, it's I'm not I'm not that together. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> can you tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance that you have?
3: For me, it's really just any any performance where I can let go and have fun and and feel brave and go for it you know and so like I was saying that recent of recent performances this Mozart 40 performance just from a few weeks ago in Shreveport was so much fun I'm kind of cheating I'm not really going to tell you a like one memory but anytime that I'm collaborating with colleagues and you know you're just communicating well moving together things are going well just sharing the musical experience that's really um, fun for me. Would you be willing to share an
0: embarrassing or funny memory of something that <laughs> happened on stage?
3: Yes, I have a good one for you. So this goes back to my college days. Um, I was at the Aspen Music Festival, and you know, totally overwhelmed. You know, this kid—I was from this small school, and there's all these kids from fancy conservatories who are there, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so I'm playing with. The chamber orchestra, which is I think one of like the top orchestra, and you get to play second bassoon, and your teacher's playing first bassoon, right? And Steve Dibner was playing first bassoon, and I was playing second. And I don't know why, because it surely it's dry in Aspen. I don't know why I would have left my reeds out to dry, but I had left my reeds outside of my bassoon case. And I got to the hall for the performance and realized that my reeds and my bassoon case, and there was not time to go back and get them. And I was horrified Mm -hmm. because this is horrible anytime, right? But then you're like sitting next to this amazing, accomplished bassoon player. And the last thing you want to do is look like an idiot, right? (laughs) And um, I was just, (laughs) oh my gosh, I was so embarrassed and terrified to tell him this and he was so nice he just gave me one of his reeds and I played on one of his reeds during the concert and (laughs) I would probably be horrified now to go back and listen to it but um anyway that's my embarrassing funny story so (laughs) thankfully I have seen you know I have I have um, hung out with Steve Dimmer several times since then and he has heard me play my bassoon in recent years and and it's kind of funny if you know Steve, he hates read making and he'll play on horrible reads. So who knows what that read was that I actually played <laughs> on in the concert. But but he was very generous and didn't didn't uh, hold it against me and let me play on his read. That's amazing.
1: I was gonna say that should have been your read advice. <laughs> like just act like you forgot your reads at home. <laughs> Collaborate with a really great <laughs> bassoonist and be like,
3: I forgot, can I have
1: what are your read? <laughs> and this has been such a delightful chat. We would love to close by having you tell us upcoming things on your plate that you're excited about.
3: Hmm. Um, yeah, I have some really fun things coming up. Um, actually tomorrow, our faculty quintet at Baylor is doing a recital with, we're doing a couple standards. We're doing the bear and we're doing barber uh, summer music. And then we're doing a quintet by Yuri power. Um, which is a new one for all of us. And so that has been a good challenge and I'm excited for that tomorrow. Um, And then other thing up, I am playing the avatar concerto by Dana Wilson. Um, I'm getting to play that twice. I'm playing it in Shreveport um, in May. And then um, our, the Baylor faculty quintet is going to Panama Um, for the music festival there in June and I'm getting to play the Avatar Concerto um, with the orchestra there in Panama. So I'm really looking forward to that. And the Waco Symphony is doing the Hindemith Concerto for winds and harp in about a month. And so that's another, um, that one is totally new for me. And, um, but I'm excited to be asked to do that and to get to do that project. Um, oh, and Pacific, um, conservatory double read day in the, in April, I get to be a guest artist. Um, Nick invited me to come out and be a guest artist for that. So those are my big things that are coming up. I mean, this interview was a really big thing, by the way, for me, I've been like, oh my gosh, (laughs) so I'm just so excited. I get to be, you know, be one of the girls with you guys and hang out. So I'm excited that, that you've asked me to do this, but yeah, those are my big performances coming up.
0: Well, we're honored that you agreed to do it. And we're so excited to air this interview.
3: Oh, thank you.
1: Check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can listen to us on all the platforms where you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts,
3: SoundCloud, YouTube, and Google Play. Time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.